Wow, that was amazing, wasn't it? Well done to our fantastic media team. Because um, we're starting our new series, and it's a series all about friendship. It's called Friend Zone. Because friends are really important to us, aren't they? Friends are really important. And friends and friendship is quite topical right now because we've been in this pandemic, we've been in this lockdown, we've had all this social restriction, and people have found that they have really, really struggled in the uh, area of friendships to maintain even just their inner circle of friends, let alone their wider circle of friends. So we've suddenly realized how important friendship is to our well-being. In fact, experts have seen what a detrimental effect that loneliness can have on our well-being. And they did a survey in November, and uh, it was a survey across the UK, and they discovered that one out of four adults in the UK was suffering from the effects of extreme loneliness. And that was actually higher, the ratio was higher, if you were a younger person, which is terrible. And the consequences of this, this loneliness, this isolation is, well, for the long term, it has effects on, on your mental health. It, it, it increases depression and anxiety. But actually, um, they've discovered, medical experts have discovered that it can have a very adverse effect on your physical well-being. Did you know, for example, that it has more adverse effects on your physical well-being than obesity. Loneliness is worse for you than inactivity, effects of pollution. Um, it's worse for you than drinking excessive amounts of alcohol. And actually, if you want to know the real nitty-gritty, it's almost the equivalent of smoking 50 to 16 cigarettes a day. That's how bad loneliness is for your health. And if you are lonely in later life, it increases your risk of Alzheimer's and premature death. That's awful, isn't it? If you are without friends, you die earlier. So it's really important that we look at this subject and ask ourselves the question, well, how do we make good friendships? What are the things that prevent us from making a good friendship? And there are probably some people here who actually think to themselves, do you know, I actually find making friends hard. Or you might be here and you might think, I seem to have a lot of friends, I've got a big, wide social network, but actually, I don't feel I've got very good, deep friendships. And to be honest, I feel quite dissatisfied in the friendships that I've got. How many of us feel that way? We're in a friendship, or we have a friendship group, but it doesn't really satisfy us. We can actually feel lonely within that friendship group. Now, you think that friendship's hard. We've got all this social media, age of connectivity, but the reality is we're not doing that well at making friendships in our society. Now, psychologists say there are three factors that drive our choices in friendship. Three factors that drive our, our choices. The first factor is we choose people who are like us. Can you all resonate with that? We choose people who are similar to us, who've got similar outlook. Maybe they dress similar to us. Maybe they like the same music as we do. Um, the reason we choose people like us is actually all about self-validation. Did you know that? So if you like K-pop 
and you meet someone else who likes K-pop, you go, hey, haven't we got great taste in music? We both like K-pop. And you validate one another. You go, yes, aren't we great? I dress in the white stuff. You dress in the white stuff. Don't we have great taste in clothes? So when you pick somebody like you, it's a way of self-validating. And we all do it. We all choose amongst people who think, yeah, we're quite similar. I think I'm going to think the same way. You know, if you've got similar aspirations, you don't feel guilty going after things because you're the same. You'll confirm each other's choices. The second factor that drives our choice of friendship is we're not stupid, are we? Social animals, human beings, we aren't idiots. We choose friends who will advance us. So they're like social alliances to propel us forward and to help us to move on and get further in life. We actually make allegiances that way. So we choose our friends who will help to further our aims and our goals and, and interests. Um, you've heard of that sort of marrying up, forming an alliance in marriage. I can talk about that. When I met Philip, I might have been a little bit cool about marrying him until the moment that I met his parents. His parents are incredible. I remember being quite cool. I said, oh, can we just you know, wait a bit for the wedding? Met his mum and dad, awesome people. And I thought to myself, if I marry him, I get these guys. And straight after I met them, I said, right, let's press on with this wedding then. Let's get it going. So we do make arrangements or we make alliances with other people that we think will benefit us. We, we can be quite selfish in that way. And the last thing that we do, the last factor, is just our circumstances, our situation. So we will choose people who just happen to be around us, like in the workplace, like in church. You know, a lot of us, our first friends, were when we are in school, we just befriended the people that were around us. So in a nutshell, we choose friends who are, number one, like us for self-validation. We choose, number two, friends who are for us. This is to help and achieve our self-interest. You know, it can be just things like they bring to us emotional satisfaction or a bit of sense of security. But the second one is for us. And the third factor is we choose people who are just with us. These are the three drivers, the three factors which will determine how we choose our friends. But today, I'm going to look at a very different model of friendship that's driven by very different factors. I'm actually going to delve into the Bible, and we're going to have a look at what principles the Bible teaches us about how we should actually choose our friendships. And it's quite different to this worldly model. So we're going to actually have a look at this book that occurs in near the beginning of the Bible. It's the Old Testament, and it's a book completely devoted to friendship. And some of you who haven't been in church before, you might be new to all of this, you might not know the Bible very well, you might be surprised to think that the Bible has got so much to say about friendship. It does. It's a massive, massive, big issue in the Bible. So this book, and the book is actually called Friend. That's the title of this book, but if you translate friend into the Hebrew, it's the book of Ruth. So if you're here, I don't know if you've got any Ruths in the room, but if there's anybody who's called Ruth who's listening, your name means friend. I have lots of friends called Ruth, and they are really good friends, amazing friends. So it must just go with the name. So we've got this book, Book of Ruth, and I'm going to explain the story in a nutshell quickly for you because it is a story about friendship, but it, it sets out a very different model of what friendship should be based upon or built upon. 
So in this story, you've got a couple. You've got a lady called Naomi, and she's married to Elimelech. These people are Jews. They are, they are Israelites. They're the people of God. And what happens in the story is they're living in Bethlehem. There's a famine, and they decide they're going to leave Bethlehem. They're going to leave the Israelite community. They're going to leave their place of worship, and they're going to go to the land of Moab because there's food there, and they feel they can prosper there and do better for themselves. So this couple, Naomi, Elimelech, they go to Moab. They have two sons, and when they get to Moab, their two sons marry two Moabite women. Now, you're not supposed to do that. In Israel, you're supposed to marry within your Israelite community. They are not being obedient to the law. They are marrying Moabites, outsiders. These women do not share the same Jewish faith. So they marry these, uh, the sons marry these two women. And then a few years later, destruction, disaster, terrible ruin. All the men in the family die. And it's quite interesting when you look at the book of Ruth and you see what the, the names of the sons, for some reason, Naomi called one of her sons sickly and the other one wasting. And you can imagine the conversation between the two wives. Oh, my husband's sickly. Oh, my husband wasting. They've died on us. How did we not see that one coming? <laughs> so you've got these two, uh, three women who are left destitute. They haven't got any husbands. Naomi turns to Ruth and... Um, I've forgotten her name. Opera? No, I'm going to have to forget. It'll come in a minute. It's my age, but everybody. It just Sometimes it takes a while for things to filter through to my conscience. Anyway, there's two wives. Uh, Naomi says to these two wives, she says, I can't offer you anything. I've got nothing. I've got no sons to give you, no future. Um, I think that our destinies will end here. So you two go back to your Moabite communities. You can remarry, and I will just sort myself out. So Oprah, Oprah, she goes. Anybody know the story? What is that woman's name? Oprah, I think. She goes back to the community of the Moabites. But Ruth says something really interesting. She, she actually refuses to leave her, and she says these words to her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Wow. That is a commitment and a half. This is what you call a binding oath until death. She turns to this woman and she says to her, I am not leaving you. And she makes this commitment to her mother-in-law and she says to her, I'm going to stay and make this commitment to you and I'm going to see your life through with you until I see you through to restoration, but your destiny is now harnessed to my destiny, we will stay together. This is the model of biblical friendship. It is this commitment to another person for their benefit. You commit to the benefit of another. This is the biblical model, and you see it again and again 
in the New Testament particularly, but this is a model of friendship that God loves. You commit to the benefit of another. Now, why I'm saying that is because if we look at the situation, there is absolutely nothing that is going to benefit Ruth. We talked about what drives relationships. So the first thing is when, when you're looking for a relationship, you look for somebody like you, so they validate you. There's nothing similar about Ruth and Naomi. They're not the same age. They're different generation. They're not the same religion. They're not the same nationality. They couldn't be more other. The second thing is, can one benefit the other? No, there's nothing that... Ruth can benefit from out of Naomi. She was married to her son. He is gone. She is now as destitute as Naomi. They both are destitute. She cannot gain at all from this situation. So she's not looking for anything that can benefit her. And the third thing is, you know, the context. They, whatever had bound them together, which would have been marriage, is not there anymore. And so Ruth really should leave. It would serve her interest to leave this woman at this time. But she decides, no, I'm going to stay. I'm going to commit myself to Naomi. And it's interesting because she can see what Naomi needs. If we look at Naomi, she's a bit like the prodigal son. Because the prodigal son leaves his father and his family and his community and he goes off. And uh, she actually says when she arrives back in Bethlehem, she says, I went away full, but I've come back empty. But what Naomi sees about, uh, what Ruth sees about Naomi's situation is that this woman, she needs one, a friend. She needs two, to connect back with her people. She needs to go back to Israel. And number three, she needs to connect back with her God. And this is the pledge that, that Ruth makes. She said, I'm going to go with you. And your people are going to be my people, so I'm going to commit to your people, and I'm going to commit to your God. In, in, other way, in other words, she's choosing to live vicariously and do for Naomi what she can't do for herself. She's yoking herself, harnessing herself to this woman and saying, this is where you need to walk, and I'm actually going to walk it with you and see you right the way through to restoration, which is incredible. There's nothing in it. It's a totally sacrificial offering. It's a bit like Christ, isn't it? Coming in alongside, yoking himself to our destiny and walking it for us vicariously. So she's just offering herself totally selflessly, sacrificially to Naomi to see her restored. An amazing, an amazing relationship. Now, I don't know if any of you have had a season of like Evie was talking about, you've been through storms, you've been through really difficult times, and you have actually experienced somebody coming in and walking alongside you and showing you unconditional, selfless love and friendship, and they have just stayed with you even though there was nothing in it for them. Now, I remember when I was 20, my mum died. I actually had a little scare with breast cancer straight after, just the strain and the trauma, I think. But at that time of my life, I felt like a social leper. Because when people hear that you're, you're, you're grieving, death has happened in your family, you're now confronting death yourself, they literally run a mile. It's terrifying for them. They think, well, what if it's catching? You know, what if I get what you've got? So you can find yourself really an outcast. And when I was 20, I went back into my final year at university and I just found this amazing group of Christian friends 
who literally just came around me to love me and care for me. I can tell you their names. So one was Arthur, one was Di. There was a guy called Matt. They're all part of the Vineyard Churches, amazing men and women. But these guys just came around me and they said, we're going to see you through. We're going to see you back to restoration. And I wasn't a great friend. I was a bit rubbish. They got nothing out of me at all. Um, but they were prepared just to pour into me and love me. Now, this is the model of Christ-like relationships. And I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, are we now consigned just to being friends for others, that we just find people in their most difficult season and the most traumatic situations, and now we just have to befriend those people and basically just be doormats for the rest of the world, not really ever having relationships that can fulfill ourselves. We're just, we're just here to pour ourselves into the world and get nothing out of it. That actually is not what I'm saying, because I'm going to talk a bit about that later. But I, I think that sometimes God calls us and it's safe to enter into other people's storms. But there are situations, and I really want you to hear this, there are some situations, there are some relationships that is actually not safe to commit to selflessly. There are some relationships which I can see people nodding in the room that you know that you've been in and it's not safe to commit. And we're just going to talk about those for a little while. I'm going to give you an example. So when I arrived about 20 years ago here in Bristol, I didn't know anybody. I was really eager to make friends. And somebody befriended me, and I thought, this is great. She's obviously seen that I'm new, singled me out. She wants to help me. She wants to be my friend. She invited me back to her house. We spent loads of time together. But very quickly in the relationship, I noticed that she was in crises, and she actually needed a lot of help and support. So I started really pouring into her. Even though I was a new person and I was looking for friends, I spent most of my time, my days, with this woman, just pouring into her life and helping her through her crises. And when she came out of the crises, I just felt, I've really helped her, I've really blessed her, and we had little mini victories, and I would just divert my attention for a moment, um, and then I could see that she was getting a bit uppity, and then suddenly a whole new crisis would emerge just to suck me back in. And we just had this cycle of crises, we overcome crises, I divert my attention, and then we come back to her crises. And I just felt drained. I felt exhausted. There were other cues. I did notice that she didn't have many other friends. And I did notice that she didn't seem to like spending time on her own. But the worst of it was, after years and years, and I invested quite a long time in this friendship, I suddenly thought one day, she never asks me anything about me. She doesn't even ask me how I am. I don't think she knows anything about my life. This whole relationship is just about her. And that was really sad. I was just really grieved. I thought, how can I be such a fool? Um, and I thought, well, maybe she's not aware. Maybe she doesn't know. Because I now know in an adult life, and I see this going on in my school, that some people really struggle with social skills. They really do. Kids in my school, they don't know how to connect. So they do whip up a storm on a daily basis. And that's, what, that's their way of connecting. They get the attention they need. People will come in. The adults and teachers will give them their time and their love, and they can connect. And so some people who don't have the right social skills, they don't know how to make friendships. They do generate crises because they've learned that it's a way of bringing others in and connecting. 
And I just thought, maybe that's what this girl is like. Maybe she just needs to know that uh, you know, I will bear with her. I can help her to learn and develop her friendship skills. She doesn't need to keep throwing up all these crises. So I just challenged her one day. I said, I'm going to be honest with you. I am not getting much out of this relationship. I'm finding it exhausting. We've just got these perpetual crises that happen in your life. There's endless chaos. And it's always about you. You never, ever ask about me. I said, can we just start to do the relationship differently? Anyway, mass, you know, gaslighting, fury, not happy at all that I, I challenged her. And actually, she just cut me off like that. And I thought, gosh, she really did not value the friendship at all. And that was awful as well. Years I'd invested, and she just didn't value my friendship because she didn't want to come and patch it up at all. In fact, she just moved on to the next person and started doing the same thing again. Now, I'm telling you, these, this is called a codependent relationship. It's really toxic, and it's really unhealthy, and it drains everybody who's in it. There are lots of different relationships which are also toxic and also unhealthy. But that is an instance of one, and it's a very common relationship to get involved in. And if you're in a situation like that, you have to confront that person. It doesn't help them to stay in that kind of activity, because they end up getting isolated. They get more and more lonely, because people don't put up with it. And the problem in that kind of relationship is actually, well, loneliness was her crisis. That was what she was trying to fix. But the reason she becomes so lonely is because she was very selfish. Selfishness completely destroys relationship. It's like a death nail in any relationship. If you are selfish, it's really hard to connect and to build relationship because people don't get the goods from you. It's just all one way. And this is what I want to tell you about Jesus-style relationships because I was talking about we commit to the benefit of another. But there is this understanding that in God's economy, it becomes a balanced relationship. It's supposed to become a bit more balanced as you progress and as you learn and you love together. Now, I've got a friend... She said, I can tell you this, but she's called Rachel. And she periodically suffers from a bit of depression. And I would say there are some times that she's not that great as a friend. She can't really give very much to me because she feels so low. But we've had a relationship for such a long time that I know that she's low, particularly in the winter. And I know that she'll come out of it. And then when she comes out of it, she's really careful to invest into our relationship and make sure it's balanced back up. So what she, what she withdraws from the relationship during her periods of depression, she makes sure she deposits back into the account so that when she goes back into her depression, she knows that I'm there. But our relationship is very mutual. It's very satisfying. We're both Christians. But I get that she has seasons where she's not great. But when she is great, she's so grateful. She so values the relationship that she makes sure that she, makes, she brings the balance back. That is a godly relationship. It's actually supposed to be mutually beneficial especially in church, because we're all modeling the love of Christ. We're supposed to give, commit sacrificially to the other. They are supposed to give sacrificially to us. And you have this wonderful balance and this wonderful mutual uh, reciprocity that's going on, and it's wonderful. And when we look at the story of Ruth and Naomi, we see exactly that. Because when we get to the end of the story, we realize that 
this relationship isn't just one-sided, and this, this huge act of sacrifice that has been done on the part of Ruth is met with something really beautiful. Because when the two women arrive in Bethlehem, Naomi starts to reconnect with her people and starts to bring Ruth in to reconnect with the Israelite community. And what you see is they start to work together and they realize that their destinies are entwined and Naomi is saying to Ruth, do you know what, Ruth? I think I can be an agent of success for you because I think what you need is to find a husband. She says, I have got a rich relative. He's gorgeous, he's powerful, he's wonderful. I think you should just throw yourself at him, get him to marry you, and then our problems will be solved. And do you know what? Do you know, some of you look at me and thinking, this is a bit like a mentoring session with Kate Gennardi, because I'm very keen on people finding their love partners. And sometimes in a mentoring session, I'm like, it's like my girls get a bit confused because one minute I'm going, not a hint of any impropriety. And then on the other side, I go, did you see that gorgeous guy coming to church on Sunday? He's got a really good job. He's doing astrophysics. Sorry. <laughs> he's, got, he's got all these credentials. He's such a godly Christian guy. Throw yourself at him, woman. Get in there. Don't hesitate. And sometimes I get quite competitive. I said, look, if you don't get in there, some charlatan from another church is going to get in there before you. And these girls are li literally terrified. In fact, I met one of my mentees the other day, and the first thing she said to me, she said, back off. I've got a man. You don't need to come after me. So I, I did. I'm very excited this year, actually. We've got... Nine weddings happening in the next year. Will somebody make it 10? I've decided. I've decided to buy a brand new charity shop wedding dress, you know, not wedding dress, a charity shop dress. <laughs> Can you imagine me turning up in a wedding dress? <laughs> a very keen pastor. No, I've decided to buy a brand new secondhand dress for every single one of them. I'm that excited. So I do love weddings and I do love, you know, marriages that, that come together. So this is what happens. It's like a fairy tale story. You know, you get the wedding, the prince and the princess at the end. So this is what happens at the end of the book of Ruth. It says this. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Result. Well done, Naomi. When he made love to her, another favorite subject of mine, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Don't we all love babies? So the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age for your daughter-in-law, this is Ruth, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What this means, it's an amazing story, is that Ruth and Naomi, well, let's say Ruth and her husband, um, Boaz, they are the grandparents, that, no, the great-grandparents of King David. Wow. I mean, that is the result, isn't it? Talk about social alliances. You get to be the ancestors of the greatest king of Israel. This is what happens. This is what their relationship, this is what their friendship produce. This is why it's in the Bible. It's almost like a message to the, the people of God saying, 
If you do friendships like this, if you commit in this way, if you commit to the benefit of the other and you both do it, look, that you get like a, an epic historic consequence. And not only is David from their sort of biological line, but Jesus also. They are genealogically related to Jesus himself. That is incredible, isn't it? And I just think, wow, okay, like this is a model. This is what we are supposed to learn, that there's something that is so powerful about committing in a sacrificial way to another and also harnessing your lot to them and, and saying to yourself, I will not rest until I, I make this person prosper in every way because our destinies are entwined. They are entwined, so when I help you, I know I'll be blessed as well. But you have this wonderful symbiotic relationship where the two of them serve each other. They're working on each other's behalf. I serve you, you serve me. This is how relationships are in the kingdom of God. Now imagine Metro. Imagine that we are a community like that. Every single one of us pouring into another not being selfish, not being here for what we can get, not going around relationships because of what we can take from people and, and, and feed for ourselves, not consuming relationships, but bringing energy and bringing life and bringing positivity and bringing hope, prayerfully bringing the kingdom into the lives of others. Just imagine what that would look like. We love community, we love friendships in Metro. In fact, it's part of our uh, kind of mission statement is find love. And love is about cultivating love and relationships in our midweek groups, which are called our hubs. And these hubs, they're little like nurseries. They're where we can practice some of these friendship skills. They're where we can practice that commitment and that sacrificial love that I'm going to commit myself to these people for their good, not for mine. I'm going to commit to this group for what I can give to each person in it and how I can bless their lives and make their lives better. That's what the hub is for. That's when hubs really work well. I, I'm delighted because I've heard that some of the hubs are really flying at the moment. They're absolutely loving being together because they feel that sense of energy and life because people are in it are loving each other and serving each other. And that is wonderful and that's what we want. So imagine, imagine our community where we're all committing ourselves to the benefit of the other. We're loving others sacrificially. We are modeling Jesus-style relationship, Jesus-style friendship. You know, Jesus famously said, he said, greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his brothers or his friends. Jesus says, he didn't mean die for your friends, but he meant put yourself at the service of your friends. This is the best way to build friendship. And this type of friendship is the most fruitful. This style of friendship will produce epic, historic results. Do you know, wouldn't it be nice to have 
a kind of a heavenly Bible, and in it there's a book called Metro, and it was just about how great they were at being friends to one another. And wouldn't it be great if people around us said, we don't really know what we think about your God, but boy, do you do friendship well. We love what we see. We just see people who are so kind, selfless, sacrificial towards one another. That gets our attention. This is how we are salt and light in the world. I love that song that you brought um, tonight, Emily. This is how we are light to the world because we, we reveal Jesus' principles, Jesus' style of doing friendship. Everything we do should be based on what he brings and teaches us and says, look, walk in this way. It's way better than living a selfish life and doing your friendships in a selfish way. This way is way better. You're going to get so much more out of it. Okay, so I'm going to give you my big idea, and we're going to pray, and then I'm going to head, uh, give, uh, give back to the, um, the worship team. But the big idea is this. The best friendships are built by committing to the benefit of others. I'll say it again. The best friendships are built by committing to the benefit of others. Father God, I thank you that love is such a priority in your economy. You say love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Father, I just thank you that you give us so much instruction and teaching in this area, and I pray that as a church we would follow it, that we would follow your code. Lord, we would follow your rule, and Father, we would be able to be builders of great friendships of epic proportion and epic consequence in Jesus' name. Amen.